The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, it's Monday, the start of a busy week in Westminster. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Boris Johnson is facing a growing rebellion over plans to replace the current lockdown in England with a tougher three-tier system. The Covid Recovery Group, CRG, of backbench Tory MPs, has written to the Prime Minister calling for a cost and benefit analysis. Now, one of the signatories is Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, and he says he's not a natural rebel. We don't want to cause the government trouble. But on the other hand, we do want the government to take notice of what we're saying. The letter is making the point very clearly that if we are to move to a tiered system, as we apparently are going to, we need to do a proper risk assessment. A possible headache from the government there. Uh, I mean, we're talking about something like 70 rebels, and that could be tricky if some of the opposition parties don't get on board. We'll discuss that in a minute. The other thing you've got to know about is the plan to announce a massive increase in community testing. We expect to hear that from the Prime Minister today. This is from when after lockdown ends on December the 2nd. So as part of a new tiered approach, some areas are going to have access to regular tests, and people who come into contact with someone who tests positive are going to be able to avoid quarantine by taking a test every day for seven days. Mm, that does sound very grim doing that. It's a yeah. very intrusive test, apparently. But meanwhile, fresh vaccine news with Oxford University and AstraZeneca saying their jab has prevented a majority of people from getting the disease. It fell short of the high bar set by Pfizer and Moderna, reaching an average efficacy rate of 70%. Though it's an easier vaccine to ship, to ship this creates a headache for the UK because it's going to need broader vaccinations to achieve herd immunity. The government's agreed to purchase 100 million doses of this particular jab. Yeah, so swings and roundabouts on that one. Of course, we're all experts in vaccines now, watching all of this very closely in the hopes that one of them at least turns out good. Uh, let's talk about all of this. Joining us now is Liberal, De Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West, Christine Jardine. She's also the party's Treasury spokesperson. Christine, great to have you with us this morning. Let's start on all of the good lockdown morning. news. Um, this yeah. talk of a return to a tiered system then, is this something that the Liberal Democrats would back? Well, what we have always said from the start of this is that we should follow the scientific evidence. And if SAGE is saying that this is the way to go ahead, because remember, we did say before lockdown that we needed a circuit breaker because SAGE was saying that they needed it. So what we have said, and we will continue to say, is that we should be following the advice that the scientists give. If this is the advice that they are given, then, then that is fine. But if it's not, then the government should think again and listen to them. In Scotland, we already have a tiered system, and it's very, very difficult. Um, it does give you better local control. That's absolutely true, but it raises problems with, you know, 
companies which have to travel from one area to another, people who travel from one local authority area to another to work. Um, so it's you know it's not as simple as well. We'll just go to a tiered system and that will work perfectly. But, but is what they also- must be doing is follow the advice. Well, I was going to say, Christine, but it, maybe it's not just as simple as saying whatever the scientists say, because there is this element of cost-benefit. Scientists are very good at telling us yep. the cost, I, I suppose, of not doing it, but the benefit of not doing it, which is economic in many ways, business, also social, uh, physical, mental health, also on the sidelines mm-hmm. of that. Um, mm-hmm. th- this group of Conservative MPs that, that we now hear about who are rebelling, they're saying cost-benefit analysis is crucial, and it hasn't been demonstrated. Yeah, um, that, that, sorry, I, I got distracted there. Yeah, I appreciate what they're saying, but we have to, it's a very careful balance that we have to draw on this. Um, yes, you know, the, the economy is taking a huge hit, and yes, um, the economy will need help to recover. But we need to bear in mind that, you know, public health is an important issue. And what worries me slightly in this in the past few days is that um, we we have kind of, lost sight almost of that, that we're becoming almost as if it's, you know, yes, not an afterthought, that sounds terrible, but we are not, I believe, giving public health any more the attention that um, we needed to. And there is a balance to be drawn. Yes, we have to make sure the economy is in a fit state to recover. And yes, we need the job retention scheme to be carried on, not just until March, but I believe until June of this year. And we need to be looking at those families who've been hardest hit by this and making sure they've got the support. So yes, we do need to support the economy, but we cannot forget in this that we are still up against a massive public health risk, that um, the death toll is continuing to rise, and there are fears that if we go into a worse second wave through the winter, then the NHS will, will not be able to cope and we will have serious problems. So while I appreciate what they're saying about balance um, needing to be drawn, I think you know we have to be very careful that we don't go too far in the other direction and lose the public health battle. And, I mean, let's talk about another um, dilemma, really, which is Christmas. Uh, is this going to be a fair trade-off, some sort of a reprieve where we can mix, where we can see family for a few days, and then a likely lockdown in January? Sorry, um, well, um, nobody has been absolutely clear about that yet, and that is one of the problems. We're now hearing that the Prime Minister is going to make a statement on it and that you know families will be able to get together over Christmas, but what will this mean? And it, it's not universally popular. Strange thing, people are saying, but you know, we've come this far. We've come through the lockdowns. We've come through all the the tier systems. And you know, is it worth um, having that for five days? While other people are saying, you know, no, it's important for people's mental health, um, for you know, for the good of the economy that we we have some sort of opening up for Christmas because for a lot of businesses and a lot of employers, this is the most important period of the year. And if, you know, we don't ensure that the, the economy has the support coming out of this, um, then those companies will go to the wall and we will lose those jobs. So yes, we do have to keep in mind a careful balance and we do need to, to bear in mind that there is a health benefit as well to um, people being able to spend time with their families over Christmas as well as the implications. Um, and that, on an entirely selfish point of view, I am quite looking forward to Christmas um, as a bit of a break from all the... Uh, 2020 has not been the happiest of years for so many people in this country. And it would be nice to have something to um, 
to um, enjoy ourselves over and celebrate with. But, Christine, on that point, I don't want to intrude into your family life, but if you have an elderly relative, would you think being with that elderly relative over the festive period is worth, for their mental benefit and yours, um, wealth, the potential health, physical health uh, benefit or disbenefit that would come from the risk of spreading the virus? Well, the risk, I mean, that is the thing which has to be taken into account. There is a massive risk to spreading the virus. Um, And if we're going to have, you know, if we're going to open up over Christmas, then we have to make sure that people are aware that they may need to um, self-isolate. On a a personal level, if I were seeing an elderly relative at the moment, I would self-isolate before I saw them, um, to be absolutely honest. And I think that um, if if we're thinking on those lines, and if the government is, going to be raising it, I would hope that they would set down some guidance about how to protect people who have been shielding, some of them for eight, nine months, um, who have been shielding and ensure that we don't, as you say, take um, the germs to them and that perhaps we should all be um, thinking about self-isolation around Christmas as well. And there is in this, I think, a huge amount of personal responsibility that people have been taking and we want to encourage them to continue to take about um, not doing, you know, not breaching the guidelines, not doing anything dangerous. But the danger is if we raise them too quickly, it's one of the things the government will have to take into account. While we would all like something to celebrate and it would, you know, be good for our mental health, if they don't do it in a very careful, very controlled, a very um, cautious way, then people will start to think, well, if we can do it for Christmas, why can't we do it for the rest of the year? So it's a massive, massive decision that has to be made and it has to be done properly. But at the same time, I do think that we need to recognise that at this point in the year, we need to recognise people's need to, to see their family. Yeah, very tricky balancing act. I've got to ask you uh, stuff around your your treasury brief as well. Uh, Looking ahead to Wednesday's spending review. I I mean, we're not going to get a full on budget here, but difficult decisions are at some point going to have to be made. Um, Where would you be finding those savings right now in order to start to rebalance the books? Well, I don't think that's the way that they're going to be doing it. And I don't think this is actually the time to be talking about savings. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I don't agree with is that the, there have been there have been rumours the Chancellor is going to be talking about a public sector pay freeze. Um, we need money to be moving in the economy. We need people to be able to to spend, and we need at this moment in time to get us through it. I don't think this is the the point at which we should start um, looking at um, savings in the economy. I don't think. We should be looking at um, cuts. I think that the government needs to be looking and continuing to invest in businesses, which before this started were strong, thriving businesses with um, lots of potential, which have been badly affected by this because they've been following government regulations and they need support to get them out of it. And that is the thing which I think needs to be the Chancellor's priority, continue to be his priority at the moment, which is getting us all through this, ensuring that the economy is in a strong state when um, the recovery comes around for us to be able to build on it and growth again. And I don't think this is the time for cuts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with the economy. We spoke about the spending review briefly with Christine Jardine a moment ago. The Chancellor insisting there isn't going to be a return to austerity in that review later this week. You will not see austerity. What you will see is an increase in the government spending on day-to-day public services, you know, quite a significant one coming on the increase that we had last year. So I think there's, there's absolutely no way in which anyone could say that's austerity. We'll be spending more money on public services. But what Rishi Sunak hasn't ruled out is a pay cap on millions of public sector workers, and that could raise roughly £23 billion if it did go ahead. But it has prompted an angry union reaction, perhaps unsurprisingly. The GMB and Unite warning it could result in a staffing crisis. The General Secretary of the TUC, Francis O'Grady, says such a move would be bad politics. I am appealing to people's sense of fairness and justice here. You know, as a country, we cannot look ourselves in the mirror and cut the pay of some of our hard-working key workers. Well, Rishi Sunak's also declined to answer questions on possible tax increases. A lot of speculation about that. He says he wouldn't discuss future budget decisions. Yep, there we've got Brexit. A significant intervention is what Boris Johnson is preparing to make in the talks. This week, negotiators beginning the final push before a deadline in eight days' time. This comes from The Telegraph, which is saying that a call to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is on the cards. All the big guns getting in at the last minute to try and seal a deal. The negotiators, of course, working virtually in what could be the final week of talks after one of the key aides on the EU side uh, was tested positive for coronavirus. The FT saying that Uh, An EU diplomat there has said there will be a breakthrough or a breakdown by the weekend. And the UK side making equally optimistic, if you could call it that, noises we heard from Rishi Sunak earlier, who was sounding pretty positive about a deal. Well, I think breakthrough or breakdown pretty much is what we would expect in the end. Meanwhile, uh, Labour, well, the exodus uh, apparently is beginning, hemorrhaging members, the party is, it seems. The Times says nearly 250 members are leaving daily since Keir Starmer was elected last spring. The paper says supporters of Jeremy Corbyn are leading the exodus from the party. Yeah, I can't imagine certain factions of Labour will be too upset about that. Now let's talk about the levelling up agenda, the economic impact of the pandemic, and two out of five manufacturers are dissatisfied with the government's agenda. This is according to a new study from Make UK, which says that regional devolution was critical to help rebalance the economy by focusing on local infrastructure projects. The manufacturing organisation is recommending giving powers to regions to tackle economic challenges, and it echoes a sentiment from the Institute for Prosperity, which is calling for a new manufacturing-led economic agenda that supports left-behind regions across the UK. Well, let's talk about all of this. We're pleased to be joined now by the chair of the group's advisory board, Caroline Flint, a former Labour minister and MP as well. Caroline, great to have you. I mean, this sits quite neatly by the sounds of things alongside the government's levelling up agenda. We haven't heard too much from them given the wider issues it's having to face this year. But I, I, I mean, are you encouraged, I suppose, by what we've heard from the government so far? 
Well, we've heard quite a lot about the amount of investment they're going to put into certain areas. Just to obviously in the run-up to the spending review, we know that there's uh, something like 100 billion uh, they're putting forward over the next uh, number of years on infrastructure. We know we've got to uh, uh, get to zero carbon, and they've announced various measures to accelerate the transition to that, as well as, of course, defence spending as well going up. And in each of those areas, there are real opportunities, if it's done properly, to make sure that we can make sure that, that money is invested in a way that not just London and the South East benefit, but across the UK, and particularly some of those areas, those former post-industrial areas outside of our cities. But importantly, that it can get to the heart of what we need to do, which is get manufacturing back centre stage in our economy, increase the proportion of our economy uh, in terms that comes from manufacturing, and make sure that we can create the growth we need to pay for those fundamental public services in the future that the pandemic is exposed that we need. But Caroline, forgive me, this is, this is the old economy we're talking about here. Manufacturing was the economy of Britain, as you talk, you've talked about, post-industrial areas. Surely isn't this just backward looking and saying uh, we need to get the manufacturing up and running, whereas in fact Britain is and is going to be in the future a services economy? Well, I, I think there's some things that we did in the past were pretty good, actually, and manufacturing was one of those areas. And when you look at countries today who actually prioritised manufacturing far more, Germany, Singapore, Switzerland and others. I think it's not about us going backwards, but saying why is it that we've allowed our manufacturing base to so decline that when it's come to something like this pandemic, we were all running around uh, looking for manufacturers that could produce some of the goods uh, to see us through this crisis. And a number of them actually did come to the front of this and produce the results. So if we were able to do that during a pandemic... Why can't we do more of it in the future? And this isn't to say that, you know, manufacturing is the only game in town. Of course it isn't. But when you look at where it is in terms of our, our share it's compared to the service sector, it still punches above its weight when it comes to exports. And I think, you know, for the future, in terms of climate change, if we are going to making the transition uh, from gas, uh, re-looking at our energy supplies, uh, money spent on infrastructure. And I would say on that, Roger, that yes, we need the big national infrastructure projects, but what I think manufacturers in the regions want is some of that infrastructure money going on to creating the environment in areas to actually do manufacturing, distribute goods and get workers to the places they need to be. And again, with defence spending, all of those, all of those headline items speak to a, a possibility, a really positive possibility, I think, if the government gets it right, to put its investment in an areas where it can make a difference, but also create well-paid jobs, skilled jobs for future workers. How do you account for, though, the countries that have picked up the slack on manufacturing where Britain has faltered? I'm talking about the Far East, Eastern Europe, many of whom are doing a lot of this stuff much, much cheaper, which, competitively speaking, creates a problem if Britain wants to get back involved again. Yeah, of course cost is an issue, Sebastian, and, and some of the areas we want to explore in the Institute is about, you know, why is it that our costs are so high? Uh, and we want to open up a debate that maybe just challenges some of the orthodoxies that currently exist. But I think quality is part of it as well. Quality is an important part of uh, what we can produce here in the UK. And, and I think that is the case in, an, you know, a number of areas of manufacturing already. But if I was going to say, let's, let's take something like um, energy and nuclear. Uh, we could have choices about a, a nuclear part at the cost of 40, 50 billion um, being uh, uh, made by ch the Chinese, or we could spend something like 2 billion on smaller modular reactors made by Rolls-Royce. 
And, and these are some of the choices and decisions that governments can make to influence how our economy is run and who it's run for. So again, these issues aren't easy. We don't operate in a vacuum. But I certainly believe, and we all believe at the Institute, on a cross-party basis, that more could be done. But another issue in all this, Caroline, is the shadow that is over this part of the UK economy and many parts of the UK economy as a result of uh, what's going on with Brexit. It's a very confused picture at the moment. As you know, we're moving into a very final stage. But with all the uncertainty, to ask people to invest in the solidity of manufacturing is a very big ask, isn't it? Well, the problem for manufacturing existed whilst we were in the European Union. Um, so, you know, this is a, a problem that has been developing for a number of years. And maybe, you know, part of that was, and, you know, I speak as someone who voted Remain, um, actually we didn't give enough attention to some of our, the homegrown way in which we could create jobs in, in this field. Um, so, of course, Brexit is an issue and uncertainty around it. But, my God, I mean, we've had this huge uncertainty created by the pandemic, which is you know, forgive me for saying, has sort of probably knocked everything else, you know, uh, you know, out of the window in terms of how we think about our economy and how it's working, looking at the levels of debt and borrowing the government the government is currently having to do. So, of course, these things are um, of importance, and I believe uh, that there will be some deal struck. But, you know, given when we look at some of those other countries in the European Union who are doing better than us on manufacturing, uh, there's something to learn there about how you can do things as a country whilst working with others as well. Now, we're going to have to, um, we're going to, have to work out as a country how we're going to do that. But too often... We have left in our communities in Doncaster, in, in Teesside and elsewhere, um, communities with jobs, but they are, are pretty low paid and low skilled jobs. And if we're going to get better skilled jobs in those areas with better pay, um, with something that does really speak to the levelling up agenda, uh, manufacturing has to provide some of the answer to that. Uh, and what about the national security aspect? You touched briefly on the virtues of manufacturing locally versus uh, in, in China around defence uh, products. How far would this go towards ensuring that there's a less involvement of foreign powers in UK infrastructure uh, and more widely in the country? Well, I think, Sebastian, that you know, if we're going to be spending, you know, you know, something like 21.5 billion over over the next four years on defence, and from what we understand. Uh, a huge part of that is going to go into things like shipbuilding, high-tech equipment, cyber security. Uh, for, you know, for us not to, as, as a country and for the government to not be thinking how that spend uh, could be uh, directed to British firms creating those products and goods here uh, would be a tragedy. Um, and, and I think also it's, it's about saying, well, how, how have we got to the situation where in crucial areas of our, our infrastructure, of our security, that we have become so reliant on countries over, overseas, particularly China, when it's come to our, our mobile systems, but also our defence and energy projects as well. I mean, that, that cannot be a, a sustainable way forward and maybe not even a secure way forward. So but, but I want to see, I want to see, um, and I'm not saying it can be exclusively, but I want to see whether it's on defence spending or on transition in terms of zero carbon and on the money that's going to be spent on infrastructure. I want to see made in Britain over many of those products. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th 
a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.